I've, I've tried to be precise and I've tried to be accurate. My view of the, the situation was that he, he had, we, we believe, the best intelligence that we had and other countries had. Every time a security benchmark has been laid down, the Iraqis have failed to meet it. Wrong. Just isn't true. And it'd be a shame if people walked out thinking it. Just a minute. We know where they are. They're in the area around uh, Tikrit and Baghdad and, and uh, east, west, south, and north somewhat. This is serious business. And, and there's not one of those. There are many of them. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 7th day of June, 2009. I'd like to invite all my listeners, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com. Of course, on CorbettReport.com, you can find past episodes of this podcast as well as articles, interviews, and videos created by the Corbett Report in the past. And, of course, by clicking on today's episode under the Episodes tab, you can find a link to a documentation list where all of the documents cited in today's episode are listed by time index. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from Infowars.com, 6th of June, 2009. Sotomayor, member of female version of Bohemian Grove. From Politico, Supreme Court nominee Sonia Sotomayor last year accepted an invitation to join the Belizean Grove, an elite but little-known women's-only group. Founded nearly 10 years ago as the female answer to the Bohemian Grove, a secretive all-male club whose members have included former U.S. presidents and top business leaders, the Belizean Grove has about 125 members, including army generals, Wall Street executives, and former ambassadors. Sotomayor's membership in the New York-based group became public Thursday afternoon in a questionnaire submitted to the Senate Judiciary Committee. From the Belizean Grove website, Having observed the power of the Bohemian Grove, a 130-year-old elite old boys network of former presidents, businessmen, military, musicians, academics, and non-profit leaders, and realizing that women didn't have a similar organization, Susan Stoutberg and 26 other founding members created the Belizean Grove, a constellation of influential women who are key decision-makers in the profit, non-profit, and social sectors, who build long-term, mutually beneficial relationships in order to both take charge of their own destinies and help others do the same. Susan Stoutberg, a former Washington bureau chief for Westinghouse Broadcasting, said she'd like to keep the Belizean Grove under the media radar. In other words, you're not supposed to know anything about an exclusive, invitation-only club organized by the ruling elite and their minions. The discovery of Sotomayor's inclusion in the secret of Belizean Grove Club is merely another indication that she is a minion of the global elite and her appointment to the Supreme Court will mean the globalist agenda will go forward. And that agenda includes the ultimate subversion of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the sovereignty of the United States. No word yet if members of the Belizean Grove engage in pagan rituals, dress up in red-hooded robes, cremate a coffin evigy of dull care at the base of a 40-foot owl altar, and romp with homosexuals like their male counterparts do at Bohemian Grove. Today's second real news story comes from BBC News, 7th of June, 2009. UK must log phone and web use. All internet and phone traffic should be recorded to help the fight against terrorism, according to one of the UK's former spy chiefs. Civil rights campaigners have criticized ministers' plans to log details of such contact as Orwellian, but Sir David Pepper, who ran the GCHQ Listening Centre for five years, 
told the BBC lives would be at risk if the state could not track communication. Agencies faced enormous pressure to keep up with the technology, he said. It's a constant arms race, if you like. As more technology, different technology, becomes available, the balance will shift constantly. The work of GCHQ, which provides intelligence on foreign and domestic threats, is so secretive that until the 1980s, the government refused to discuss its existence. Details of the times, dates, duration, and locations of mobile phone calls, numbers called, websites visited, and addresses emailed are already stored by telecoms companies for 12 months under a voluntary agreement. However, the Liberal Democrats said the government's plans were incompatible with a free country and a free people. In February, the Lord's Constitution Committee said electronic surveillance and collection of personal data had become pervasive in British society. Its members said the situation threatened to undermine democracy. However, Sir David said he was speaking out to help people understand that agencies were there to protect them. Today's final real news story comes from the Mail Online, 2nd of June 2009. The cloud with no name. Meteorologists campaign to classify unique Asparatus clouds seen across the world. Whipped into fantastical shapes, these clouds hang over the darkening landscape like the harbingers of a mighty storm. But despite their stunning and frequent appearances, the formations have yet to be officially recognized with a name. They have been seen all over Britain in different forms, from Snowdonia to the Scottish Highlands, and in other parts of the world, such as New Zealand, but usually break up without producing a storm. And some experts believe the stormy weather phenomenon deserves its very own classification. Experts at the Royal Meteorological Society are now attempting to make it official by naming it Asparatus, after the Latin word for rough. If they are successful, it would be the first variety of cloud formation to be given a new label in over half a century. It's a bit like looking at the surface of a choppy sea from below, said Gavin Prater-Penny, founder of the Cloud Appreciation Society, who identified the cloud from photographs sent in by members. We try to identify and classify all of the images of clouds we get in, but there were some that just didn't seem to fit in any of the other categories. So I began to think it might be a unique type of cloud. He added, The underside of the clouds are quite rough and choppy. It looks very stormy, but some of the reports we have been getting suggest that they tend to break up without actually turning into a storm. The Royal Meteorological Society is now gathering detailed information for the days and locations where the Asparatus clouds have been seen in an attempt to understand exactly what is causing them. Welcome to episode 89 of the Corbett Report. Meet Donald Rumsfeld. Now, if you're like most casual observers of Washington, D.C. and the comings and goings of the various presidential administrations, you might remember Donald Rumsfeld as the Secretary of Defense for the first five years of the Bush administration. And if you were curious about Donald Rumsfeld's biography... Of course, it's readily available online from such reputable sources as the Department of Defense at defenselink.mil, which has a Secretary of Defense bio-history of Donald Rumsfeld, which reads in part, quote, Donald H. Rumsfeld was sworn in as the 21st Secretary of Defense on January 20, 2001. Before assuming his present post, the former Navy pilot had also served as the 13th Secretary of Defense, White House Chief of Staff, U.S. Ambassador to NATO, U.S. Congressman, and Chief Executive Officer of two Fortune 500 companies. In 1957, he came to Washington, D.C. to serve as administrative assistant to a congressman. After a stint with an investment banking firm, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from Illinois in 1962 at the age of 30, 
and was re-elected in 1964, 1966, and 1968. Mr. Rumsfeld resigned from Congress in 1969 during his fourth term to join the President's Cabinet. From 1969 to 1970, he served as Director of the Office of Economic Opportunity and Assistant to the President. From 1971 to 1972, he was Counselor to the President and Director of the Economic Stabilization Program. In 1973, he left Washington, D.C. to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, in Brussels, Belgium. In August 1974, he was called back to Washington, D.C. to serve as Chairman of the Transition to the Presidency of Gerald R. Ford. He then became Chief of Staff of the White House and a member of the President's Cabinet. He served as the 13th U.S. Secretary of Defense, the youngest in the country's history. From 1977 to 1985, he served as Chief Executive Officer, President, and then Chairman of G.D. Searle & Co., a worldwide pharmaceutical company. The successful turnaround there earned him awards as the astounding Chief Executive Officer in the pharmaceutical industry from the Wall Street Transcript and Financial World. From 1985 to 1990, he was in private business. Mr. Rumsfeld served as Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of General Instrument Corporation from 1990 to 1993. General Instrument Corporation was a leader in broadband transmission, distribution, and access control technologies. Until being sworn in as the 21st Secretary of Defense, Mr. Rumsfeld served as Chairman of the Board of Gilead Sciences, Inc., a pharmaceutical company. Before returning for his second tour as Secretary of Defense, Mr. Rumsfeld chaired the Bipartisan U.S. Ballistic Missile Threat Commission in 1998 and the U.S. Commission to Assess National Security Space Management and Organization in 2000. End quote. What an impressive biography. And of course, all of that information is easily enough found from the usual trusted online sources. But strangely enough, what's often left out of Donald Rumsfeld's biography is some of this information. Donald Rumsfeld, he's, he's like the devil. He always appears at the scene of any great crime. Aspartame gets approved after it killed the monkeys they gave it to. He's the guy heading Searle up and Monsanto gets it approved. He gets the Terminator seat approved. He gives Saddam the WMDs. He's the guy who, under Gerald Ford, starts the continuity of government martial law takeover plan for executive tyranny. I mean, it's Rumsfeld. It's Rumsfeld. He gives the nukes to Pakistan. He gives the nukes to North Korea. Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld. It's like, I mean, I could see Jesus up on the mountain and, 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 and the devil appears in a poof of smoke to say, I'll give you all of this and it's Rumsfeld. I mean, if you want to use the parallel or parable or analogy of the, of, of, of the Sith Lord, Palpatine, it, 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 it's Rumsfeld. I mean, this guy is at the scene of crimes going back 33, 34 years. And, and I could list hundreds of them. It's, it's everywhere. It's always Rumsfeld. He is a highest level super gopher for the very top elite. He is a henchman of the highest order. He is an imperial legate, probably of a greater order than Henry Kissinger. You can see him in those press conferences, his hand motions, his body language. I mean, he is a genius, and he is seething with dark gulfs of power. He wants death and destruction. He hates America. He hates freedom. And he gave the nukes to North Korea. He was involved giving the nukes to Pakistan. This guy is a monster. Hyperbolic renting, you ask quizzically? Unfortunately, not. Quite the contrary. In fact, everything that Alex Jones mentioned there is not only documentable, but in fact does not even begin to scratch the surface of the easily enough documentable evidence that Donald Rumsfeld is indeed little more than an imperial legate for the New World Order. Where to begin? Well, as Alex Jones noted in that rant, certainly Donald Rumsfeld's crimes against humanity do date back to his time in President Ford's administration at least over 30 years ago. In fact, almost 35 years ago now. 
But why don't we approach today's episode by grouping some of this information together thematically. And let's start with information related to Rumsfeld's work in the pharmaceutical industry. And of course, let's go back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, when Donald Rumsfeld took over a company called G.D. Searle. At the time, Searle was having great difficulty getting their latest food additive, aspartame, approved for human use. In fact, the scientific advisory board that was in charge of approving aspartame was decidedly against approving it for human use, and it looked like aspartame was going to be consigned to the dustbin of scientific history for the toxic chemical that it is, until Donald Rumsfeld stepped in and used his political weight to get aspartame approved. But before we get into the specifics of what Donald Rumsfeld did in order to get aspartame approved, I think it would be beneficial to take a moment to inform the listeners out there who do not already know this fact that aspartame is a toxic chemical of the first order. And if you are drinking diet colas that contain aspartame or chewing gum that contains NutraSweet or Equal or any of the other brand names under which aspartame is sold... You need your head examined. Literally. Peer-reviewed scientific studies have shown that from 1983, when aspartame was first put on the market, brain tumors began to skyrocket, even as other forms of cancer were either flatlining or in decline. A mere coincidence, you might think? Well, absolutely not. When you actually start to examine the chemical composition of aspartame, you find three constituent components. One is methyl ester. Methyl ester metabolizes in the bloodstream as methanol, which is wood alcohol. And for those out there who don't know, wood alcohol is highly poisonous, with as little as 10 milliliters causing permanent blindness, and somewhere around 125 milliliters being deadly. Now, the worst part is, methanol itself might pass through the system in trace amounts like is found in aspartame, but it gets worse. It actually metabolizes further into formaldehyde, which cannot be removed from the body. Its effects are cumulative, and after drinking this poison-laced soda or chewing this poison-laced gum for a number of years and even decades the formaldehyde can begin to build up to toxic levels. Not only is the methyl ester constituent component of aspartame highly poisonous, but another of the constituent components of aspartame is called aspartic acid, or aspartate, which, in fact, is a highly toxic excitotoxin, or a specific type of neurotoxin that inflicts damage on brain and nerve cells. Specifically, it can disrupt the creation of L-tryptophan, which is one of the building blocks for serotonin, a very important neurotransmitter, and it can literally cause brain damage. So for those of you out there who are hearing this for the first time, all I can say is, if you see aspartame, you should think poison, and you should not drink or eat whatever contains that aspartame. Aspartame is poison. And to back that up, I would like to exhort each and every one of my listeners to watch an incredibly detailed, well-researched, and well-presented documentary called Sweet Misery, which looks at some of the very important scientific details behind the chemical composition of aspartame and how it is toxic on so many levels. Now, this is an excellent documentary, and even those who are aware that aspartame is a poison should still watch this documentary to become armed with the specific information to be able to present this to other people. And, of course, I would recommend that everyone tries to get this documentary out to other people by emailing the link, which, of course, you can find from the documentation page for today's episode. This documentary contains interviews with neuroscientists and former FDA investigators and people who were actually involved in the independent studies, which time after time showed some of the harmful and toxic effects of aspartame, 
as opposed to, of course, the industry-funded studies, which a peer-reviewed scientific paper showed were statistically, surprisingly, much more likely to find positive attitudes and things to say about aspartame. That is to say, every time the industry funded research into aspartame, positive results were found, and every time an independent study was conducted into aspartame, it found negative effects. Wow, I wonder if there's some jury rigging going on in these experiments. Well, of course, this documentary also lays out some of the ways in which the experimental data from even the industry-funded studies were skewed and, in some cases, completely forged in order to make it seem like aspartame was not toxic. But there were very key studies that were done which showed some of these toxic effects in some of the animals that they were tested on, including brain tumors in rats and even death in some of the monkeys that aspartame was tested on in its initial test experiments. So once again, Sweet Misery, an incredible source of information about the specifics of how aspartame is a poison, and once again, you should be actively getting that documentary out to anybody who is still out there using these diet colas or these sugar-free gums or artificial sweeteners in their coffee. But as the documentary also points out, there was an equal amount of shenanigans going on in the approval process for aspartame. Now, again, there's a lot more to this story, and so once again, I would direct my listeners to watch this documentary in its entirety, But right now, let's listen to a short clip from Sweet Misery that talks about Donald Rumsfeld stepping in as president, CEO, and chairman of Searle, and the way he threw his political weight around in order to gain approval for this neurotoxin and poison. He took over this company, and it it was going down the tubes completely. Had FDA investigations. It had um, it had uh, uh, grand jury investigations. It was losing money. Its stock was down. A, f- a person was hired to come in and explain why the FDA was so down on them, and went through all of their records and said, "You guys haven't got a chance. This company is is a mess, a total mess." And he went in with a full team of politicians. He went in with himself, a politician. Uh, he brought his special assistant, who was uh, uh, a, a Republican Party operative, worked with the Republican National Committee, brought in a press guy from there, brought in lawyers, and they took on the issue of this company as a political issue. And um, one of the first things that he, not first, but somewhere in that first year, it was late in the year, he called me and said, let's have a meeting. So I went and I met with him. We flew into the Madison Hotel and we met with, and we met and we talked. And my point was that the uh, struggle that was going on around NutraSweet was a scientific struggle. We needed to know the scientific answers. And this was before the public court of inquiry had ruled. We needed to know the answers. So why don't we, the people who were raising all of the questions about NutraSweet and the company, together create a, um, a set of protocols that we would agree address the serious questions that needed to be looked at to decide whether or not it should be, be marketed. So we had this meeting. At the, at the time that uh, they put their uh, evidence into FDA in, 19, um, in 1973, there were no requirements at FDA to examine effects on the brain from food additives. No requirements whatsoever. So there never was a study done to look at whether or not this affected the brain in, uh, in a neurological sense. The cancer studies were incidental. Those were cancer studies. But these were not brain studies. The cancer studies turned up brain tumors. But they didn't look, for example, at these holes in the brain or mental retardation or uh, lowering the ability of people to think or causing dizziness or blindness or any of those things. None of that was looked at. And uh, we were proposing that we design some studies to look at it. And, um, and uh, we had a very good, very full and frank exchange. The scientists kept jumping up and running around the room and saying, there's no problem, there's no problem, there's no problem. Ultimately, he made the decision not to find out what the facts were but to move forward on the limited record that they had before them. And I believe it was a decision that was made that said we can, we can accomplish our ends better legally and politically than we can by actually doing the science to determine the outcome of the questions that are being asked. And in my mind, that demonstrated that he was an individual not interested in facts, 
not interested in the truth, not interested in finding out what the fundamental realities are, but much, much more interested in setting a goal and then, and then by will and force pulling all the resources that he could possibly pull together to achieve that goal, i.e. get NutraSweet on the market and sold. And so Donald Rumsfeld had been all these, in all these meetings and known um, all of these potentially harm, very harmful effects of this substance that he then went on and continued to market? Well, I, I, I can't say what Donald Rumsfeld knew or didn't know. Uh, he's not a scientist. He's not very interested in science, from what I can tell. More or less, uh, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a fixer. He's, a, he's, a, uh, he's a, um, an operative. He, he, uh, you assign him a job, and he goes and he does it. Uh, now, I'm, I'm sure that as he gets up into the level of Defense Department, he, he sort of makes up his own jobs and says, I'm going to do these things. But, the, but facts are not all that important to how he proceeds because he's so confident that he knows what the outcome should be that he will look, across, at least in the way he did a nutrition, he looked across the horizon to find all those facts that would support his position and then minimized or denigrated all the facts that didn't support his position. Undoubtedly, without Rumsfeld pulling his political strings and calling in political favors, aspartame would not have been approved. And a toxic poisonous substance would not be being added to our food substances as we speak. Of course, if all of that wasn't enough, then perhaps as the former defense secretary and soon-to-be future defense secretary, perhaps Don, Donald Rumsfeld should have noticed when the Air Force's own special publication called Flying Safety, Volume 48, Number 1, which was issued in January 1992, came out with a special story about aspartame and how it should not be ingested before those in the United States Air Force fly a mission. Yes, even the U.S. Air Force has admitted that drinking cola might be dangerous before flying an aircraft, and think what that means if you are ingesting this on a daily basis. At any rate, for those who don't believe me, I'll of course include the link to environmentaloncology.org, which has a PDF of that actual article from the January 1992 issue of the U.S. Air Force's own publication, Flying Safety. But at any rate, that, unfortunately, was not to be the end of Donald Rumsfeld's involvement with the pharmaceutical industry. As we go into in the Corbett Report article, Swine Flu, Who Profits?, Donald Rumsfeld, of course, does stand to directly profit from all flu hysteria, whether brought about by a real flu or a fake flu scare, whether brought about by a vaccine laboratory error-induced flu, or a naturally occurring flu. At any rate, Donald Rumsfeld profits. And to flesh that out a little, why don't we take a look at a global research article from October 2005 by Michelle Chosodovsky at globalresearch.ca. Who owns the rights on Tamiflu? Rumsfeld to profit from bird flu hoax. Quote, We bring to the attention of global research readers this important commentary by Dr. Joseph Mercola. The fundamental issue is who owns the intellectual property rights over Tamiflu? The media reports suggest that the Swiss pharmaceutical company Roche will make billions. While the drug is produced by Roche, it was developed by Gilead Sciences Inc., which owns the intellectual property rights. Gilead, which has maintained a low profile, has outsourced the production to Roche. Donald Rumsfeld was appointed chairman of Gilead Sciences Inc. in 1997, a position which he held in the years prior to becoming Secretary of Defense in the Bush administration. Rumsfeld had been on the board of directors from the establishment of Gilead in 1987. End quote. So, make of that what you will, but at any rate, Donald Rumsfeld can only profit if there is a flu scare like the one we just saw, which of course, as I mentioned in the article, Swine Flu, Who Profits, resulted in a lot of free advertising for Gilead Sciences Tamiflu. But let's step back for a moment and take a look at one of the other claims that was made in the Alex Jones rant at the beginning of today's episode, that in fact, Donald Rumsfeld's documented crimes go back into the 1970s. 
Now, we can start to get an indication of that from a very well-researched article from May 27, 2009, from OnlineJournal.com. Cheney and Rumsfeld pressured CIA to mislead Congress in the 1970s, too. And this article by Margie Burns goes into the ways in which the Cheney-Rumsfeld alliance managed to keep important and sensitive documents away from the Church Committee, which was, of course, established in 1975 to begin looking into the abuses of intelligence agencies such as the FBI and CIA. And, of course, a lot of very valuable information did come out of the Church Committee's hearings, so I would suggest that my listeners look into that article and find out about the documents that Cheney and Rumsfeld helped to hide from that committee. But it should also be noted that Cheney actually started his uh, Washington career under Rumsfeld in the Nixon administration and then became the campaign manager for Ford's re-election campaign. And, of course, Rumsfeld was Ford's transition team manager, White House chief of staff, and then secretary of defense. And it was in that time that another Cheney-Rumsfeld concoction began to emerge. And for that, let's turn to commondreams.org for an article originally published in The Atlantic by James Mann called The Armageddon Plan. Quote, At least once a year during the 1980s, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld vanished. Cheney was working diligently on Capitol Hill as a congressman rising through the ranks of the Republican leadership. Rumsfeld, who had served as Gerald Ford's Secretary of Defense, was a hard-driving business executive in the Chicago area, where, as the head of G.D. Searle & Co., he dedicated time and energy to the success of such commercial products as NutraSweet, Equal, and Metamucil. Yet for periods of three or four days at a time, no one in Congress knew where Cheney was, nor could anyone at Searle locate Rumsfeld. Even their wives were in the dark. They were handed only a mysterious Washington phone number to use in case of emergency. After leaving their day jobs, Cheney and Rumsfeld usually made their way to Andrews Air Force Base outside Washington. From there, in the middle of the night, each man joined by a team of 40 to 60 federal officials and one member of Ronald Reagan's cabinet, slipped away to some remote location in the United States, such as a disused military base or an underground bunker. A convoy of lead-lined trucks carrying sophisticated communications equipment and other gear would head to each of the locations. Rumsfeld and Cheney were principal actors in one of the most highly classified programs of the Reagan administration. Under it, U.S. officials furtively carried out detailed planning exercises for keeping the federal government running during and after a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. The program called for setting aside the legal rules for presidential succession in some circumstances, in favor of a secret procedure for putting in place a new president and his staff. The idea was to concentrate on speed, to preserve continuity of government, and to avoid cumbersome procedures. The Speaker of the House, the President pro tempore of the Senate, and the rest of Congress would play a greatly diminished role. A few details about the effort have come to light over the years, but nothing about the way it worked or the central roles played by Cheney and Rumsfeld. The program is of particular interest today because it helps to explain the thinking and behavior of the second Bush administration in the hours, days, and months after the terrorist attack on September 11, 2001. Vice President Cheney urged President Bush to stay out of Washington for the rest of that day. Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld ordered his deputy, Paul Wolfowitz, to get out of town. Cheney himself began to move from Washington to a series of undisclosed locations, and other federal officials were later sent to work outside the Capitol to ensure the continuity of government in case of further attacks. All these actions had their roots in the Reagan administration's clandestine planning exercises. End quote. 
Now, that article goes into much greater detail about the program, its history, and some of its implications. But it's important to note that what is being discussed here is not simply a prudent plan for keeping some some key officials out of the area in case of a terrorist attack. What's being talked about is literally the undermining of the U.S. Constitution to install a new president in case the old one gets out of communication or, of course, is killed during an attack. Again, all of this might sound prudent until one starts to really consider its implications and begins to take a look into the history of the way that this program has actually been planned and carried out, including, of course, George W. Bush's infamous NSPD-51, which, of course, is an absolutely secret continuity of government plan, which even members of Congress, ranking members of the committee that is designed to look over such matters, is not allowed to see anything other than the cover page for the document, which in itself indicates that in the event of any emergency, the president will be a dictator and Congress will have no authority. I will, of course, post links in the documentation section to information about NSPD-51 and the continuity of government planning, which is in place right now. But, of course, it's also important to note that, of course, on September 11th, 2001, continuity of government planning was implemented. And there's every reason to believe that, as Peter Dale Scott and researchers of his ilk point out, that we are still under continuity of government today. But once again, all of this starts to come into perspective when you find something like this from Wikileaks.org. Rumsfeld updated Army's continuity of operations plan before 9-11. Quote, Ten months before the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld approved an updated version of the U.S. Army's secret operational continuity of government plans. A draft document published by the whistleblowing website WikiLeaks entitled Army Regulation 500-3, Emergency Employment of Army and Other Resources, Army Continuity of Operations Program, dated 19th of January 2001, spells out changes in Army doctrine. Issued by headquarters, Department of the Army, and signed off by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and the Secretary of the Army, The document is affixed with a warning. Destruction Notice. Destroy by any method that will prevent disclosure of contents or reconstruction of the document. All Hazards COOP planning is described as the means by which the Army remains capable of continuing mission essential operations during any situation, including military attack, terrorist activities, and natural or man-made disasters. While the Army stresses the updates described in the AR-500-3 relate to chemical, biological, nuclear attacks, natural disasters, and technical or man-made disasters or accidents, current Army doctrine is also heavily weighted towards contingency planning for civil disturbances. In addition to constructing nuclear-proof underground facilities where the civilian leadership could escape a decapitation strike, other COG provisions included a series of executive orders designating which officials would assume cabinet-level posts and other executive branch positions. Officials so designated would constitute a shadow government should officeholders be killed in an attack or otherwise incapacitated. However, when these and other Pentagon civil disturbance plans surfaced in the 1980s during the Iran-Contra hearings, they were roundly criticized by members of Congress, civil liberties groups, and the media before disappearing once again down Orwell's memory hole. The inherent dangers implicit in such plans are that unelected executive branch officers could assume the presidency and other appointed offices subject neither to congressional scrutiny nor judicial oversight. Exercising sweeping emergency powers buried within the presidential decision directives, unelected officials could suspend the Constitution, declare martial law, and create an executive branch dictatorship that rests solely on the power of the U.S. military. 
most troubling, executive branch officials under secret rules of a COG regime could suppress and usurp the lawful powers of Congress and the judicial branch by force of arms if deemed necessary as a means of ensuring cooperation under a unitary executive. With the stunning revelations published by WikiLeaks, it is abundantly clear that top Bush administration officials were busily revising continuity of government plans, including civil disturbance contingencies for suspending the Constitution and imposing martial law long before the 9-11 attacks. Since that fatal and tragic day seven long years ago, we have been told repeatedly by the government and their media sycophants that 9-11 was the day when everything changed. We now know that thanks to WikiLeaks, that as with the invasion and occupation of Iraq, the unprecedented and lawless surveillance of Americans, the illegal detention and torture of prisoners of war, that Bush administration assertions are no more than a pack of murderous lies. One fact is abundantly clear from the massive conflicting evidence and assertions made by proponents of various theories surrounding the 9-11 events. AR-500-3 demonstrates that from the very first moments after being installed in office, the Bush regime was involved in a controlled demolition of the U.S. Constitution. End quote. And, of course, for loyal viewers of the Corbett Report's YouTube videos who saw Where Was Rumsfeld on 9-11, the changing of continuity of government plans just months prior to 9-11 were not the only mysterious changes in orders issued by Defense Secretary Rumsfeld in the lead-up to 9-11. On June 1, 2001, just three months before 9-11, the Department of Defense's protocols for dealing with hijacked civil aircraft were changed. These changes made it explicit that all requests by the National Military Command Center for assistance by the Department of Defense in the event of a hijacking required the approval of the Secretary of Defense. Why were the protocols for dealing with terrorist hijackings changed just three months before 9-11 to specifically indicate that all requests for assistance by the Department of Defense had to be cleared with the Secretary of Defense? And how did Rumsfeld going AWOL on the morning of the most important attacks in modern U.S. military history affect the response of NORAD that day? These are the questions that the 9-11 Commission just didn't ask. Yes, that's right. Due to changes that were made in the shoot-down orders for civilian aircraft in the event of terrorist hijackings, just months prior to 9-11, Donald Rumsfeld became the go-to man in just such an event. On 9-11, where was Donald Rumsfeld? Well, the simple answer is nowhere to be found, at least until the plane hit the Pentagon. And then there's lots of footage of him out on the front lawn helping carry the stretchers of some of the injured. But even as the World Trade Center had been hit twice, thus marking what was undoubtedly at that point a terrorist attack on the United States, and even as the plane was coming into the Pentagon, which... As Norman Mineta's test testimony has made clear, Dick Cheney was well aware of in the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, Donald Rumsfeld was in his office taking some phone calls and having a regularly scheduled CIA briefing. All of this is uh, very bizarre to say the least, or shall we say perhaps not even really believable. But all of that information is, of course, well-documented, and the information that I used in that video comes from an excellent article by Matthew Everett from the online journal in May 2007 under the headline, Donald Rumsfeld on 9-11, An Enemy Within. And once again, that's one of those key Rosetta Stone articles that I hope you get and get out to everyone you know, because it does have some very telling details about Donald Rumsfeld and his response to the September 11th attacks. But while we're discussing Donald Rumsfeld and 9-11, I guess it would be a disservice if I didn't mention this article from May 16th, 2008 from PropagandaMatrix.com, 
Rumsfeld on tape. Terror attack could restore neocon agenda. Former Defense Secretary's conversation with military analysts on political problems. The correction for that is an attack. Quote, Shocking excerpts of confidential recordings recently released under the Freedom of Information Act feature former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld talking with top military analysts about how a flagging neocon political agenda could be successfully restored with the aid of another terrorist attack on America. The tape also includes a conversation where Rumsfeld and the military analysts agree on the possible necessity of installing a brutal dictator in Iraq to oversee U.S. interests. The tapes were released as part of the investigation into the Pentagon's Message Force Multipliers program, in which top military analysts were hired to propagandize for the Iraq war in the corporate media. The most extraordinary exchange takes place when Lieutenant General Michael DeLong bemoans shrinking political support for neocon war plans on Capitol Hill and suggests that sympathy for the Bush administration's agenda will only be achieved after a new terror attack. Rumsfeld agrees that the psychological impact of 9-11 is wearing off and the behavior pattern of citizens in both the U.S. and Europe suggests that they are unconcerned about the threat of terror. End quote. But perhaps it's better if you listen to it for yourself. Well, that's what I was just going to say. Um, I mean, this president's pretty much a victim of success. We haven't had an attack here in five years. Uh, <coughs> help. Um, the, the, the perception of the threat is so low in the society today yeah. uh, that, that uh, it's not surprising that the behavior pattern reflects a low threat assessment. And the same thing is in Europe, there's a low threat perception. Um, the correction for that, I suppose, is, is an attack. And, and when that happens, uh, then everyone gets energized for another period. And it's, it's a shame we, aren't, we don't have the maturity to recognize the, the, the seriousness of the threats. My God, the lethality, the the carnage that can be imposed on our society is so real and so <laughs> present and, and so serious that, that you'd think we'd be able to understand it. Donald Rumsfeld, in his own words, suggesting that another 9-11 would be needed in order to make the public realize just how wonderful the Bush administration really is. Of course, we could continue to go on and on and on about the egregious offenses against the U.S. Constitution that Rumsfeld committed during his tenure as Defense Secretary under the Bush administration, but perhaps it could be argued that that is old news. After all, he stepped down in 2006 and now has no political power in the Obama administration. But the crimes of Donald Rumsfeld continue to haunt us like a ghost coming back from the grave even after he is long gone from the Washington political scene. And one sign of that comes from the real news that we quoted last week on the Corbett Report podcast. U.S. Defense Secretary Robert Gates warns North Korea, talking about recent North Korean provocations, launching missiles, and threatening to further wreak havoc in the East Asian region with their nuclear weapons. What does this have to do with Donald Rumsfeld? Well, for that, let's turn to a Guardian.co.uk article from May 2003, The Two Faces of Rumsfeld. Quote, Donald Rumsfeld, the U.S. Defense Secretary, sat on the board of a company which three years ago sold two light water nuclear reactors to North Korea, a country he now regards as part of the axis of evil, and which has been targeted for regime change by Washington because of its efforts to build nuclear weapons. Mr. Rumsfeld was a non-executive director of ABB, a European engineering giant based in Zurich, when it won a $200 million contract to provide the design and key components for the reactors. The current Defense Secretary sat on the board from 1990 to 2001, earning $190,000 a year he left to join the Bush administration. The type of reactors involved in the ABB deal produce plutonium, which needs refining before it can be weaponized. 
one U.S. congressman and critic of the North Korean regime, described the reactors as nuclear bomb factories. End quote. Yes, once again, Donald Rumsfeld, with one of his plum positions sitting on the board of a large engineering firm, obviously due to his political connections, is just tangentially related to a deal which happened to weaponize North Korea. But wait, it gets worse. Of course, something that the neocons have been beating the war drums about, and something that made the second episode of the Corbett Report, because it has been on the front burner for so long, is the Iranian situation, and of course Iran's efforts to build a nuclear weapon, at least so claims the neocons, even though, of course, all intelligence indicates that they are at least several years away from actually being able to construct such a nuclear weapon. But even so... Who is responsible for the Iranian nuclear program? Well, for that, let's turn to something from nowpublic.com, entitled Kissinger, Cheney, Rumsfeld, and Iran's Nuclear Program, from August 10th, 2008. Quote, Those beating the drum about Iran's nuclear problem should be made aware that the United States has been complicit in the Iranian program since the Ford administration. Then-Secretary of State Henry Kissinger offered a strange deal to Pakistan that had been formulated by Richard Cheney, Ford's chief of staff, and Donald Rumsfeld, Ford's defense secretary, according to an extremely well-researched and copiously footnoted book by Adrian Levy and Catherine Scott Clark entitled Deception, Pakistan, the United States, and the Secret Trade in Nuclear Weapons. While focusing on Pakistan's nuclear program and the Reagan administration's turning a blind eye to it and General Zia's bloodthirsty military rule while recruiting and funding the Afghani freedom fighters, better known as the Mujahideen, a.k.a. Al-Qaeda, deception references the unlawful proliferation of nuclear technology by the United States to Iran under the Shah. The strange deal that Cheney and Rumsfeld devised and which Kissinger offered to Zulfikar Ali Bhutto Pakistan's prime minister, before Zia had him executed, was an effort to persuade Pakistan to forego its plans to pursue a nuclear program. In 1976, Kissinger begrudgingly proposed that if Bhutto terminated Pakistan's own nascent uranium enrichment project, the United States would arrange to supply Pakistan with its needed enriched materials from a facility funded and supplied by the U.S. and based in Iran. Cheney and Rumsfeld had masterminded the scheme, arguing that Iran, even though awash in oil and gas, would need a nuclear program to meet its future energy needs. This plan was to be the first nuclear deal with Iran, and would have been extremely lucrative for U.S. corporations such as Westinghouse and General Electric, which stood to earn $6.4 billion from the project. The plan to lead Iran into the nuclear age was supported by Kissinger, although the offer to involve Pakistan was not to his liking, hence his reluctance to propose the plan to Budo. Furthermore, according to an article in the Washington Post, written by Daphna Linzer, published on March 27, 2005, confirms U.S. involvement with Iran's nuclear program until 1979, which involved large-scale intelligence sharing and conventional weapons sales. The Linzer article goes on to assert that even with many key players in common, such as Cheney and Rumsfeld, the U.S. government has taken opposite positions on questions of fact as its perception of U.S. interests has changed. End quote. So once again, Rumsfeld involved in helping to arm the very people that he would later claim to be his enemies. And, of course, we all remember the infamous handshake of Rumsfeld and Saddam Hussein back when he was the Middle East envoy for Ronald Reagan in 1983, and Saddam Hussein was our man in the Middle East. So, once again, just a continuing pattern. And, of course, all of these enemies that are created along the way always seem to come back and suddenly want to use those weapons that they were given by people like Rumsfeld. One would almost argue that it's even a predictable result of arming despotic tin-pot dictator regimes across the world for a number of years and decades. 
Of course, we still have barely even begun to scratch the surface of some of the incredible information about this imperial legate of the New World Order. Switching back to 9-11, of course, we'll remember that on 9-10-2001, the day before the largest terrorist attack in the U.S. history, Rumsfeld declared a new war, a war on bureaucracy. Why? Because it turns out that in fiscal 2001, the Department of Defense just happened to lose $2.3 trillion. $2.3 trillion, with a T, dollars. He made this blithe announcement in a press conference on a Monday, which is of course not the day that bad news is generally released in the Washington Beltway world, but... The very next day, 9-11 happened, and the $2.3 trillion was swept under the rug. And, of course, we all remember that one of the offices hit on 9-11 in the Pentagon was the budget analyst office working on the problem of the missing $2.3 trillion. I can also point you, of course, to the infamous video of Cynthia McKinney daring to question Donald Rumsfeld about the missing $2.3 trillion from fiscal 2001, a further $1.1 trillion from fiscal 2002. That's over $3 trillion for those who are keeping count at home, and that's in just two years of budget operations. And, of course, Cynthia McKinney also questioning Donald Rumsfeld about DynCorp, which, even after it had been shown to be engaged in child kidnapping rings, was still given plush Pentagon contracts. And you can also watch Rumsfeld squirm for a moment before ultimately avoiding answering Miss McKinney's questions. You can also take a look at the excellent series of articles that Steve Watson was writing for Infowars.net back in 2006, and the breakthrough article that tied so many strings together about the phony Al-Qaeda tapes, entitled Al-Qaeda Tapes, Direct Link to Military PsyOps and Donald Rumsfeld, which talks about how the Intel Center, which somehow manages to exclusively obtain and exclusively release and sell at a very high price Al-Qaeda's propaganda videos, has direct links to someone named Jim Melnick, who actually worked in the U.S. Army and the Defense Intelligence Agency running PSYOPs and working in the office of the Secretary of Defense, i.e. Donald Rumsfeld. Again, that is one of those Rosetta Stone articles that will be featured in a future installment of Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist. I would definitely recommend people check that out. There's an article from October 2007 from Think Progress via truthnews.us, Blackwater in Iraq, Blame Rumsfeld, which details how Rumsfeld, becoming angry that the Pentagon was losing control over reconstruction efforts in Iraq, refused to provide military security to diplomats, forcing the State Department to rush to Blackwater for help. And of course, we all know how Blackwater in Iraq turned out. Moving right along, from November 2007, PrisonPlanet.com ran an article under the headline Memos Prove Rumsfeld Directed Psychological Terror Campaign Hyping Climate of Fear, Threat of Violence to Achieve Political Objectives is the very definition of terrorism. Quote, New Pentagon memos released by the Washington Post prove that ex-U.S. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld directed a psychological campaign of terror in order to achieve political objectives, making Rumsfeld himself a terrorist, according to the very definition of the term. Donald Rumsfeld, the former United States Defense Secretary, tried to maintain an atmosphere of fear in America as part of the Iraq War propaganda campaign, a series of leaked memos has shown reports the London Te Telegraph. In an April 2006 memo, Rumsfeld encouraged Pentagon officials to keep elevating the threat and talk about Somalia, the Philippines, etc. Make the American people realize they are surrounded in the world by violent extremists. Rumsfeld also urged his staff to concoct bumper sticker statements, mindless cliches, in an attempt to garner continued support for the occupation of Iraq. End quote. Yet another legacy from the Donald Rumsfeld Department of Defense, the effects of which are still being keenly felt today, comes from an article from informationclearinghouse.info from 2006, The Pentagon's War on the Internet. Quote, 
The Pentagon has developed a comprehensive strategy for taking over the internet and controlling the free flow of information. The plan appears in a recently declassified document, the Information Operations Roadmap, which was provided under the FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, and revealed in an article by the BBC. The Pentagon sees the internet in terms of a military adversary that poses a vital threat to its stated mission of global domination. This explains the confrontational language in the document which speaks of fighting the net, implying that the internet is the equivalent of an enemy weapons system. The Defense Department places a high value on controlling information. The new program illustrates their determination to establish the parameters of free speech. End quote. And of course, regular listeners to the podcast and those who are following the headlines today and finding out more about the new implementation of the new Obama cybersecurity czar and the various bills that are being pushed through Congress and the Senate at the moment to try to curtail freedom of speech on the internet specifically, will know that this is all part of a larger coordinated plan, the first signs of which in the controlled corporate media began to leak out in 2006, all of course thanks to Donald Rumsfeld's Defense Department. Time after time after time, issue after issue after issue, decade after decade after decade, we scratch the surface of what's happening in the world, and every time there is a new enemy, a new threat, a new destabilization, a new crisis, a new toxin, a new poison, something released into our atmosphere, into our environment, into our political body, it is Donald Rumsfeld coordinating or puppeteering it into existence. Perhaps the information provided today is enough to at least begin people on the journey towards discovering what this imperial legate of the New World Order is capable of and what he has been doing for decades. So it would be safe to assume that just because he is not in the beltway at the moment does not mean that he is not well-connected and still managing to pull strings to make things happen on the road to the New World Order. I will leave it here for my listeners to begin piecing together their own research on this linchpin figure in the history of the last four decades of U.S. imperial aggression and the eventual creation of a new world order. But I think it's been important to take a look at this information, and it's important for you to continue to research this, because this gives an idea of how one person, well-connected, well-placed, and with devious intent, can inflict so much damage. And of course, when you find a figure like this, like a Rumsfeld, like a Kissinger, like a Cheney, who does seem to be behind so much of the, what's going on in the headlines today, chances are it's a good place to start your research into things like the New World Order, which are, of course, so mind-boggling in scope that often one doesn't know where to begin researching. Well, how about beginning by trying to find some of the other things that Donald Rumsfeld has been involved with over the past few decades? Of course, the other side of this is to try to understand the psychology of what makes someone like a Donald Rumsfeld or a Henry Kissinger or a Dick Cheney tick. What makes them work? Why do they work so long and so hard for so many years, even into old age, to continue wielding their influence and their power and continuing to amass their already incalculable personal fortunes. I think it should be obvious that the answer here is more than mere greed. There is something else that makes this particular type of individual tick. And that's what we'll be looking at in next week's episode of the Corbett Report podcast. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me today and inviting you to join me next week for episode 90 of The Corbett Report. Our leaders are psychopaths. Rumsfeld is running roughshod. Okay. Donald Rumsfeld, um, who of course Kissinger referred to as the most ruthless man he's met or some such. I, I would concur with, with former Secretary Kissinger's assessment of, of Secretary Rumsfeld's ruthlessness and I would 
would add that, that you know, if you want to judge ruthlessness, Henry Kissinger is a pretty good standard. You know, he knows ruthless when he sees it. The message is, he knows ruthless when he sees it. The message is, I, I don't think Rummy needs an alibi. Rumsfeld is running roughshod. There are things we know that we know. I, I don't think Rummy needs an alibi. The message is, he knows ruthless when he sees it. There are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we now know we don't know. Rumsfeld is running roughshod. But there are also unknown unknowns. There are things we do not know we don't know. Rumsfeld is running roughshod. I don't know any other way that we can do business. I don't know any other way that we can do business. He is tremendously wealthy and powerful. Rumsfeld is running roughshod. Good morning, C-SPAN. I've been uh, following the Pentagon briefings for several months now. It's certainly some fine black comedy with Rumsfeld almost acting as a modern-day Dr. Strangelove. And here's my question. Why do you consistently throw him such clunky softballs? I just really cannot address that. I mean, are you also cowed by his uh, raw animal magnetism alpha male power? I mean, why do you let this man get away with licking his lips and saying, I could answer that, but I won't? I would not want to validate the premises in your question because I'm, I'm not knowledgeable enough about what you've said. I don't know. Why do you not follow through? The fourth estate has a responsibility to the American public to, you know, well, do its job, for example. I don't know any other way that we can do business. And when you guys sit there and just let him do his stand-up comedy routine it's for shame. It's a black period in American history when these clowns can get away with intimidating and just blowing off real questions that we really need answers to. Just wanted to get the devil out of this place. Thank well, you you've, con you've convinced me I'm going to invest in the Carlisle. <laughs> Rumsfeld.